Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Full of Energy, an AEE podcast where we talk about workforce development, energy hot topics, and energy policy. The Association of Energy Engineers, otherwise known as AEE, is a professional organization of over 17,000 members and 32,000 actively certified individuals in over 105 countries. AEE serves your needs for career development, networking, and recognition. So what does it really mean to be net zero? That's the big question of this month's episode, and I'm joined by Ali Duncan from Stoke and Rallo MP from Sestineo to explore how companies offset their carbon footprint and, and some effective ways to truly become carbon neutral. Let's get to know our experts. Ali, do you mind introducing yourself? So I'm Ali Duncan, as Laurie mentioned. Um, I currently work at Stoke, who provides integrated sustainability and ESG consulting services to both real estate owners and occupiers. Um, I currently work with both the engineering and carbon services teams, um, providing uh, portfolio decarbonization solutions to real estate uh, portfolios. Uh, my background's more on the technical side, um, so I'm able to provide these solutions kind of soup to nuts. So getting into the weeds with both the facilities managers, uh, development and investment managers um, on the ground floor, and then working my way up, um, providing these uh, carbon pathways or decarbonization pathways, if you will, um, and working with the executive and C-suite folks. Um, passing it over to Raul. Thank you very much, Ali, and delighted to be here on this Full of Energy podcast. So just to introduce myself, I am dialing in from the Republic of Ireland on the other side of the Atlantic, and I am founder and managing director of Sustaneo. Um, the word Sustaneo is Latin for I sustain, and we're a sustainability consultancy in Ireland, and we try and make sustainability practical and meaningful for um, businesses in our sort of catchment. Um, I'm a certified energy manager, so work very much as an energy consultant and a trainer. And our business, we've done a lot of work in carbon footprinting. We've done hundreds of carbon footprints over the years, um, from everything from bakeries to television stations. And, um, you know, energy is a great place to start when you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint. So the certified energy manager badge has really been helpful in kind of our um, profession. Um, I've also been a contributor to the ISO uh, document Net Zero Guiding Principles, which was launched at the last conference of parties, COP27, in Egypt last November. Um, so, yeah, that's us. We're a sustainability consultancy. We're very much focused on climate action, and we're also looking forward to launching a new two-day climate action certificate under the Association of Energy Engineers. And that kicks off, I think it's on the 15th and 16th of November, Laurie Beth, is that right? That's totally true. Thank you both for introducing yourself um, and for bringing the energy to this podcast. So let's start with the basics. What is the difference between net zero and carbon neutral? So this is an interesting one, just as there's no unique uh, definition or really governing body uh, for these terms that's currently out there. Um, and they're often they're often defined in different contexts. So having to do with um, organizations, uh, buildings, products, uh, services. Um, so I like to think of carbon neut neutrality, carbon neutral, as um, striking that balance between uh, your greenhouse gas emissions and then offsets. Um, but there's no real level of emissions reduction that's specified here. 
where net zero, I like to think of, or it refers to kind of a reduction first approach um, with carbon credits being that net in the, in the net zero. Um, and, and I guess maybe a caveat here, net zero um, typically and generally has a focus on some sort of science-based emissions reduction um, traje trajectory. Um, and then with minimal reliance on offsets. Um, yeah, I, I would second that. And what I like about Ali's explanation there is, I think they can mean different things to different people and depending on what context you're in. So when I'm working with businesses, I'm very clear that carbon neutral and net zero are different things, um, but it can be used in policy context and countries might kind of mean the same thing. So over in the Europe, they're talking about climate neutrality. And when they talk about that, I think the policymakers mean net zero. Um, but it, that would mean something different to the scientists again. So the scientists are very good at uh, providing strict definitions on this. Um, but I just wrote a blog for you, Larry Beth, there. And thanks for putting that up on the AWE website. Um, my understanding of both, and I do bear in what Ali is saying, because I think um, you know it, it can mean different things on different sides of the Atlantic. Um, but carbon neutral is an older concept, really dates to the, the early noughts. Um, you can refer to a product service or an organization. But when we're talking net zero, to me, that's only about an organization. Um, and it was interesting when we were writing the ISO guidelines on net zero, they did have products in there. Um, you know, there's loads of people contributing. I put my hand up and I said, you know, can we take out products and services? Because they wanted to avoid greenwashing getting into the document. Um, and it would be very easy for a company to say, well, this product is net zero when their other 100 or so products are, are not net zero. So we didn't want that to happen. So net zero for me is about organizations. Um, and also, as Ali said, you know, there are standards for carbon neutral, but they don't really specify the levels of reduction. Generally, they, they tend to say you must do scope one and two emissions, which would include all your, your purchased energy, but scope three indirect emissions from everything else, all the stuff you purchase is, is optional. Whereas net zero will ask you to get into your value chain and it will ask you for hard concrete reductions in line with the science. So, you know, aligned to a one and a half degree centigrade science-based trajectory. And then lastly, if you do choose to do offsets um, for carbon neutral, you can buy offsets that are verified, but they can be avoidance offsets such as, you know, energy efficient cook stoves. They sort of prevent additional emissions going to the atmosphere. But doing net zero, it's a particular type of offset. They've got to be verified carbon removal offsets. So these are projects that actually draw down greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Things like tree planting and direct air and carbon capture and storage. Um, so to me, it makes net zero is the far more onerous term in conclusion, I think. Uh, but they're different terms in my mind. I agree. And maybe I'll just jump in here because I'd like to maybe tell a little story if we have time. So, um, and I'm gonna bring up the County of San Diego. Um, I currently live and work in San Diego, but originally from the East Coast of the US, uh, Washington, DC. Um, Stoke has been um, a consultant for the County of San Diego for some time now. And it's been very interesting to watch 
the County of San, Di San Diego transition. Um, so they kind of started out in the mid 2000s, um, uh, developing a net zero energy portfolio plan. Um, and then Stoke has helped them transition that net zero energy plan to a net zero carbon plan. And maybe a little bit of context here, like. Why am I talking about the County of San Diego other than that I sit here? Um, well, they were the first um, local government in California to develop any sort of net zero um, portfolio plan. And additionally, they're the largest county in the US to commit to um, zero carbon emissions by 2035. And they also have 10 million um, gross square feet of, of uh, facilities. So they're huge. and because they've been doing this since the early or mid 2000s even if it was uh, net zero energy they've already made grand progress um so it's just interesting that we you know kind of that that transition story from energy to carbon um and then they have kind of seen like raul brought up you know they've seen like carbon neutral um carbon positive carbon <laughs> like all these different terms kind of crop up um so just just reflecting on that a little bit yeah i i've seen that as well you know that you can get different organizations they mean the same thing when one says carbon negative and the other says carbon positive that's how confusing it is so over in europe we have um the uh, greenwashing directive is coming out where it's called the green claims directive and that's trying to put manners on all of these environmental claims that are coming out uh, such that organizations can't freely mislead citizens in the EU. So you bring up organizations, and I'm just curious, why are companies, municipalities, everyone making a commitment to be net zero? I might take it a step back to why do organizations uh, get involved with sustainability or sometimes it's ESG. Um, so to me, there's sort of four benefits as to why you do that. One is like building business resilience and increasing competitiveness. The second is about sort of driving innovation and reconsidering your business practices. Can you do something else? Probably most important is the third one, which is establishing credibility and reputation. And this could be whether it's to do with your investors, buyer specifications, brand enhancement. Increasingly, we're seeing staff retention over here. So um, the young people in their 20s or so, they simply will not work for an organization if they see they're greenwashing or not serious about climate and sustainability. And also there's access to finance. So we're seeing, um, you know, uh, aircraft leasing companies, whatever, they have to do net zero and ESG. Um, it's an access to finance for them. And then the, the fourth reason is, you know, just to prepare for shifts in public policy. We've got a lot of shifts over here on the European side, um, a lot of declarations on net zero and all of that. Um, so these are kind of broadly the reasons for doing sustainability. And normally climate change jumps to the fore and suddenly you're on a net zero journey, which is the buzzword. It was carbon neutral before that. I think the last two years has been very much net zero. So I would echo what Ali is saying about San Diego. The move has been from energy efficiency to emissions reduction. And we've seen that with our National Energy Authority here. It's all turned towards decarbonization, getting the CO2 out of the economy. Maybe I'll just add a, add to that. Um, 
uh, on that uh, discussion topic. So uh, what I've seen working with our clients at Stoke, um, many of the firms that we're working with um, or that become our clients are already, like Raul said, they're all already very aware of climate change um, and they want to be leaders um, and leaders meaning they want to transition their business to a lower, a lower uh, climate risk uh, level. So they're already very aware and they're just grappling with how to tackle this all. Um, and then these firms that are coming to us wanting to tr transition their business to a lower carbon footprint, um, these are the firms that have and are becoming kind of the leaders in the space because they're setting that baseline for others. Um, and then the other firms <clears throat> kind of are assessing, assessing the risk in terms of, you know, like Raul was saying, <clears throat> shareholder and, and, invest, and investor pressure, as well as sub supplier pressure, um, and then regulatory, regulatory compliance, and then reputational uh, risk. So they're kind of assessing their risk um, and, and risk threshold and what they're able to deal with. And then there's this kind of last category in my mind of firms or organizations that, that truly just um, want to do it because it is the right thing. And they see that there is climate risk and there's financial, um, it, it makes financial sense to them. Um, and we don't have to convince these firms. So these are the kind of more advanced firms. Yeah, risk is an interesting one. I think, um, you know, when we're talking about climate mitigation, which is emissions reduction, or if we're talking climate adaptation, which is, you know, adapting our facilities to a changing climate such that we're more resilient. Uh, th there's risks on both sides. So some organizations we're working with are now considering, will our assets be stranded? You know, they might be in the sort of transporting fossil fuels or something. And so that's a kind of risk on, on the greenhouse gas reduction side. And then of course, there's the, the adaptation risks, you know, sea level rise, coastal erosion, storm damage. Um, so for big utilities, this is very much a, a a clear and present sort of danger for them that they're looking at that. And we are getting more uh, frequent and severe storms as well. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about carbon credits. Are they useful? Thanks, Laurie Beth. Um, yes, carbon credits are, are key to any net zero uh, decarbonization pathway. Um, however, there's a lot of caveats. However, they must be used only in avoidance, like Raul was saying, only in avoidance and reduction as a way to deal with um, the residu residual emissions uh, remaining. Um, and they they should be high quality um, car uh, carbon credits. So, and it's interesting because high quality this this term is now being thrown around, and and thankfully there are. Um, principles and standards that are coming out and evolving. So um, um, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative is kind of the buyer side. And then um, the ICVCM is on the supplier side and they kind of have um, core principles for high integrity carbon credits, um, such things as robust uh, third party verification and validation, additionality, durability, um, you know, no double counting, things like this. Um, but it's, 
I guess that's, I'll also kind of step back and say it's interesting because when you take a look at the leading net zero frameworks that we're seeing our clients kind of gravitate to, um, it it's 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 always that reduction first emissions and and the reduction first emissions that we're seeing are a fairly high threshold. Um, you know, science-based targets requires 90% reduction of emissions before carbon credits can even be considered to, to call yourself net zero. So um, there's a lot to unpack here, but I'll, I'll let uh, Roel jump in here. Yeah, sure. I was just attending a webinar by Ecosystem uh, Marketplace this week, actually. It was quite interesting. They did a new study on the voluntary carbon markets around the world, um, and they reckon it's now a $2 billion market. So it stepped up massively in 2021, like almost threefold. And it sort of represents the interest by businesses in becoming net zero, demonstrating net zero or carbon neutral. Um, and I think what's very interesting there is they, they came out with a couple of conclusions that those companies that invest in offsets and the voluntary carbon market are three times more likely to get stuck into their scope three emissions evaluation. And they're also three times more likely to set science-based targets. So it's not that, well, they ascertain that it's not that they're trying to buy their way out of a problem. The, they're ascertaining that they're um, more, I guess, knowledgeable and they're, they're sort of more developed in their decarbonization and net zero pathways. And I think that's kind of interesting. Um, there is a wide diversity of carbon offsets out there. Um, I divide them into two. The ones that avoid emissions going to the atmosphere, they, they can be used for carbon neutrality and the ones that remove them from the atmosphere they tend to be more expensive and they can count towards your net zero targets if you're buying offsets um, interestingly also from that study the ecosystem marketplace they were looking at all of the companies disclosing into the carbon disclosure project and only about two percent of that collective carbon footprint um, was offset with carbon offset. So quite a small proportion at the moment, but still a $2 billion market and growing rapidly. And the other thing about them is the cost. You know, you can buy um, perhaps low quality offsets for less than a dollar per ton of CO2 equivalent. And th th I've seen them go as high as $1,300. Um, and that would be for like direct air carbon capture with long-term geological storage. So if you're investing in these sort of expensive technologies, um, it quickly makes the business case turn you back towards energy efficiency and doing projects within your own facilities rather than trying to buy your way out of it through technology. Um, I think the other thing to maybe to say is some scientists are warning of the net zero trap. So myself and Ali are working in net zero, trying to help organizations and local authorities or municipalities do net zero. Um, but the trap is that we believe technology and markets will save us um, when, in fact, we need to get off fossil fuels. That's the urgency. And maybe I'll jump in there and I, I go back a little bit um, and kind of describe just again, because I sit in California, we're lucky we, we have we sit in a compliance market. So we have our cap and trade um, system here, um, but that's not. That's not always typical. I think there's like over 30 um, compliance markets globally. And then you have the voluntary uh, carbon market, which is 
um, extremely challenging and expensive, as Raul was saying, and, and just lacking transparency to work within. Um, but I know that there's guidelines coming out and um, there's an evolution of, of making this a more transparent um, marketplace to work within. But I guess I thought um, what we've seen or what I've seen in working in this with some of our clients is that we're now seeing um, insurance. We're seeing insurance kind of come out of this because it is so wild west and uh, lacking transparency. Um, and it's addressing the concerns of our corporate clients in purchasing carbon credits. Um, there's now insurance products out there um, that covers companies um, if credits are not delivered or are somehow reversed. Maybe if a carbon project doesn't um, come to fruition or maybe there's a forest fire and the trees never grow. For whatever reason, there's now insurance that um, companies or corporations, whoever that needs the credits, um, can purchase to kind of um, protect them, which I found interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah, I think on this side of the water, we do have a compliance scheme as well. It's called the EU Emissions Trading Scheme. And um, in Ireland, there'd be about 110 single point emitters. You know, they sort of tend to be steel factories and cement factories, that sort of stuff. Um, big sources of emissions, and they're all involved in that. It's a cap and trade scheme. And currently, the market value there is just under about 100 euros per ton of CO2. So there's lots of prices out there, and it's well confusing whether you're in the compliance market or the voluntary market. So I'm interested to hear, have you seen companies called out for greenwashing? There's lots of greenwashing that I encounter through my work, but also just watching advertisements and just living in this world. There's a ton of greenwashing. And, um, but I guess what I'd like to focus on is our, like Raul was saying, um, there, there are ways that Stoke is, is helping guide firms to effectively communicate their targets through clear definitions of net zero or carbon neutrality um, and alignment with leading frameworks. So this is just especially challenging for firms that are just diving into their net zero journey. Um, and there's a lot of hesitation. So I, I work with a lot of firms that are coming to us in their infancy. Maybe they don't have any targets set yet, um, they don't, they may not even know where they stand. Um, so they have no baseline and, and we're putting together their, uh, greenhouse gas emissions inventory for them and benchmarking where they stand. But then we also work with firms that are more advanced and they're well on their, um, net zero pathway towards their target. So there's varying levels of, um, I guess, comfort, uh, with the firms I deal with and, and, who is more apt to jump into, you know, purchasing offsets or dealing with these more complex um, strategies. And I guess maybe my best advice is to lean on transparency, following leading frameworks, and then having that concise definition of what your methodology is um, and the target you're aiming for or have committed to. Um, maintaining uh, records or documentation um, and then uh, embedding some sort of 
like risk response uh, process within your enterprise risk management uh, process for your organization, which kind of follows the government structure in an ES any ESG program. And then um, just kind of maybe um, if there are knowledge gaps or capacity gaps, um, just hire an expert like Raul or myself to guide your firm um, in setting the target and getting your arms wrapped around where you even stand on what your goals are um, and being realistic about that. Um, and then really evaluating the feasibility of where you want to go and, and how fast you, you can feasibly get there. Um, and then also maybe defining what trouble means to your firm. So this is getting into that risk as, uh, risk um, lens again. So what comfort level does your company or firm or organization uh, have with risk in terms of reputation, financial, legal? Um, so really understanding uh, where you wanna sit with each of those risk wise. Um, so I think, yeah, just, just leaning into transparency is always the best advice um, for this. So um, maybe just to define greenwashing, it's when a business shares false or maybe misleading information about its sustainability practices or initiatives for the sake of marketing itself. And we do see this a lot. So sometimes our clients are coming to us as Ali said, you know, th there's a risk there. Uh, they want to protect themselves from the risk of being perceived as greenwashing. And I'll give you an interesting example. It's a bit of a funny one from Ireland on green electricity tariffs, right? So in Europe, we have this system whereby energy suppliers can claim 100% renewable energy through the purchase of guarantees of origin. And th these are monitored in Ireland by our Commission for the Regulation of Utilities. And there's a recent sort of de de debacle in Ireland um, where the, the CRU, Commission for the Regulation of Utilities, was saying one thing, and we had the Advertising Standards Authority of Ireland that was upholding complaints about these energy companies, to, you know, advertising that they have a 100% green energy. Um, and the Advertising Standards Authority were saying that it was misleading because it wasn't possible to prove that the customers did indeed receive 100% renewable energy. Um, and what's really happening here is everything is legit and legal. So the electricity supply companies are buying guarantees of origin, but they would be outside of Irish territory, like they might be Norwegian hydropower, for example. Um, but the electrons the customer are actually receiving through the wires are not renewable. They're from the average carbon intensity of the Irish grid. So that's what's happening there. Um, customers are becoming quite uh, you know, climate literate. They're getting behind this and they're calling it out, saying this is greenwashing. But there is actually a system in place that you know the EU came up with to um, give people the choice of buying green electricity. So th that's a bit of a funny one. Um, and also, you know, I think going back to the term carbon footprint, I can give you a second example. 
um, where there was a PR firm, I won't mention names this time, and they um, were working for a fossil fuel company to popularize the idea of a carbon footprint. So they put a carbon footprint calculator on their website back in 2004. And this was seen by some as a complete sham because it was about displacing the focus away from the big fossil fuel company and shifting it onto the consumer and putting that sort of climate anxiety on the individuals. It can largely be seen as a successful campaign because when I'm doing climate action workshops, um, I meet a lot of people who are anxious and they're worried about their own personal carbon footprint rather than what they can do in their business or through their sphere of influence, which is often a far bigger impact. So do you think we're going to meet our 2030 goal? I know this is a question that a lot of people have, so I'd love your opinions on it. Ali, do you think we're going to meet our 2030 goal? Um, I think the U.S. and personally, I've gone through a lot of ups and downs over the past couple of years, <laughs> um, just with um, changes in the administration that the U.S. has seen. Um, so there was a bit of a dark period um, where the U.S. was not part of the Paris climate or the, the Paris Agreement. And then in 2021, when Biden came into office, um, the U.S. re-entered the Paris Agreement um, and, and re-entered it having, um, uh, so we previously were at, you know, around 30% uh, emissions reduction by 2025. But in 2021, re we re-entered it um, committing to a 50% reduction by 2030. And this sounds aggressive, however needed, um, but the U.S. is doing things like um, we had the Inflation Reduction Act um, funding, uh, gov huge government federal funding around that, which just came out in August 2022. So, you know, the U.S. and, and California, again, where I sit, we're not just putting policy out. Um, there's funding mechanisms and there's mechanisms to help support this transition. Um, so I think I'm I'm back on that. I'm back on the hopeful side. Um, it's really easy to get dark and it's really easy to um, feel like you're never, like what Raul was just saying, as an individual, I never feel like I'm doing enough. Um, and, and this is part of the reason why I work in this space, because I get to work with big portfolios and try to help make a larger impact in any way that I can. Um, so I think I'm on the hopeful side um, is where I sit right now. Raul, what about you? Yeah, I think um, it is a massive challenge, but we've got to get there somehow. Um, th there's a a good um, website called Climate Change Performance Index, and um, it ranks c countries globally on how they're doing. Um, and Ireland is ranked 37th currently, so it's it's looking pretty low performing. And that's mainly because we've done a lot on policy, like we have a carbon tax and we have a, a Climate Amendment Act in place, and, and they're great things, but our emissions have not dropped. They're still up there. Um, but, you know, if I highlight the successes that Ireland has done, you know, we've managed to enshrine net zero by 2050 in law, and we've got a target of 51% reduction by 2030. I don't know if they're trying to be 1% better than the Americans. I'm not sure what that's about. But anyway, 51% is our number. Um, and 
you know, Ireland is seen as a leader in managing intermittent renewable energy. So, you know, hands up or, you know, congratulations to our grid. They got 36% electrical demand met by wind in 2020. So that, that's quite a phenomenal thing when you consider the wind is so intermittent. Um, another one, Ali actually alerted to me. She sent me an email uh, last week. Um, our national planning board, they're called on board Planola. They rejected an application to construct an LNG terminal in Ireland. And I think that's quite amazing because, you know, we all hear on the news, the energy price crisis, you know, with the war in Ukraine. So we've got energy security on the one hand, and we've got our climate change considerations on the other. And there generally isn't a happy medium. You've got to make a decision. So here is our planning body uh, taking climate change considerations in precedence to probably energy security. It's a tough call. It's a very brave call. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. Uh, but I think that's kind of an interesting one. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, meeting the 2030 goals. So, we kind of spoke about policy wins from both um, the European and US uh, lenses. And then I wanted to kind of speak a little bit to organizational wins um, and kind of I've spoke to throughout the podcast that um, I work with a lot of organizations that are both just starting out in their infancy along this journey and then more advanced uh, companies. So um, these wins are very different for both of these or for the organizations in each of these two categories. Um, so creating successful. Um, so for companies in their infancy that are just starting out, um, what the approach I take is just creating and su successfully implementing um, very foundational um, items for these firms. So that might be um, for one uh, North American REIT, um, we created um, an ESG development standard for the for their development managers to use when constructing new buildings. Um, we're also creating a tenant fit out guide. So very like foundational documents. Um, and then also we do a lot of upskilling. So works workshops um, to upskill staff from the C-suite down to the development investment managers to facilities personnel. Um, workshops, trainings, um, any ways to upskill um, the folks. And then um, kind of transitioning to more advanced firms that I work with. Um, the wins here are more related to like helping them expand their emissions boundary to include like all of their material scope three emissions through feasibility analysis um, or maybe more strategic um, strategic uh, decarbonization planning or, um, you know, looking at purchasing uh, renewable energy credits or maybe even carbon credits. So these are kind of the more advanced firms. And then the more, the firms that are just starting out, um, it's just foundational documentation and upskilling that we kind of focus on. And those are the wins. You know, we, we have to solve net zero and 
I think the good news is we are seeing some companies that are getting there. Um, it's interesting to look at Microsoft's journey, and you, you, I think I put a link to their blog there in the um, the, the article we gave you there, Larry Beth. But um, I'm going to take another example from Ireland, and this is our national postal service. They're called On Post, and they've set their own net zero emissions target for their own operations by 2030. So quite ambitious. And they want to get a 50% reduction by 2025, which is only two years away now. Um, they're also looking at doing zero emission cities. So these are postal deliveries without emissions, no fossil fuels in their, their fleet. Um, they started off really well with procuring their electric fleet. Like they have over a thousand electric vehicles. This is out of a fleet of 3000. They've moved to electric trikes and they've even got um, seven and a half ton electric trucks in their fleet. So these are real like concrete actions that they're doing. And when they've got heavy goods vehicles that can't be electrified, they're also looking at hydro treated vegetable oil, which is like a biofuel HVO, which is kind of, gained a lot of airwaves over here. Um, as well as that, they're working on energy efficiency. So their drivers are doing eco-driver training to drive fuel efficiently. Um, but the challenge for them is not actually procuring the vehicles because they're well committed to that. It's, it's actually just getting them. So th they've paid for them, they're in the pipeline, but it's getting them to Ireland. And bearing in mind, we, we've got right-hand drives that can sometimes be a restriction um, in terms of, you know, there's a bigger market for the left-hand drives. Um, so that's their their fleet, which is a massive source of their um, emissions. The other is their buildings, because they've got a lot of post offices around the place, and they're doing their LED lighting, their solar photovoltaics, optimizing their HVAC and doing heat pumps. So they're doing a lot on that as well. And, you know, then they're reporting concrete numbers. So they've got a pathway to net zero, net zero. They're doing very tangible projects that we can all respect. And they're quite transparent in the data they're publishing on their website. So they've got one and a half million euros avoided in fuel costs, 3,400 tons of carbon avoided and a 35% reduction. And, and this is all quite visible. So when we see organizations like that sort of leading the charge, I'm just hoping that all the other businesses will follow suit. And of course, the likes of myself and Ali are here to help those businesses. We'll continue to do so. Well, I know we barely scratched the surface with Net Zero today, but I thank you both for sharing your thoughts and some of your examples um, and, and giving us a well-rounded thought about Net Zero and carbon neutrality and stuff. So thank you both for coming on the podcast. This has been Full of Energy. We'll see you next month.